My name is Paul Riley, also known as Political Paul, and this is The Riley Rant, a weekly podcast where we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. Let's rant. Thanks for tuning in to the 34th official episode of The Riley Rant. As was noted in the intro, we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. And I really want us to hunker down this week on a topic that's current and relevant in the news after the Parkland shooting, after Las Vegas, where 58 were gunned down, after Pulse, the nightclub in Orlando, where many were killed. I think it's important for us to really understand and talk about guns is important for us to really understand and talk about the gun reform debate. And that's what I want to do with this 34th rant. It's not enough to read tweets. It's not enough to listen to your favorite anchor. It's not enough to read your favorite publication. I think that beyond the perspectives that these anchors and these publications give, we have to really drill down another layer to provide context on the gun reform debate to understand how we ended up in this predicament. And when I watch the news as an avid watcher of cable news, I often see and sense that these individuals were laying the gun reform debate to us, that they're oftentimes operating from a certain level of knowledge and expertise, and that it's sometimes difficult for them to break it down for people who are just tuning in and who are just becoming aware of these issues and who don't know all the different acronyms, who don't know all the different laws that were passed or the different debates that were previously had, and so they can feel sort of alienated from really understanding what's going on because we oftentimes talk about these issues at this high level, assuming that everyone knows everything about the topic, when that's really not the case. And so with the desire to educate you on the fundamentals of the debate, I'm really glad you tuned into this rant, and I really hope that after this, you'll have enough information to to make your own opinions and your own decisions about how you're going to act on this information to really invoke the change that you want to see, not only in your city, in your state, and in the country, but in the world more broadly. So thanks for tuning in, and let's talk about guns. The gun reform debate is centered on the Second Amendment. In 1789, the Constitution was ratified, and immediately after ratifying the Constitution, uh, the Founding Fathers began to dig into what they now term the Bill of Rights, and those are the first ten amendments to the Constitution. And the Bill of Rights were important because they sought to lay out additional protections uh, for the American people. Now we know, looking back at history, that this was at times a contradiction, as they talked about the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in the Declaration of Independence. They talk about all men being created equal while still owning slaves, while still treating certain subsets of the population as second-class citizens. But with that information acknowledged, it's important to then reflect on what the goal of the Bill of Rights were for those Americans who did have rights at the time. I think it's important to always acknowledge that truth. And so within the Bill of Rights, those first 10 amendments, there were protections for the American people. The First Amendment we all are familiar with, that's freedom of speech, freedom of expression. Uh, you have the right to free speech. You have the right to say what you want, uh, when you want it. Now, of course, over the course of time, there have been limitations placed on that uh, in terms of speech that incites violence and things of that sort. But for the most part, we're granted the right to freedom of speech. Now, another well-known amendment is the Second Amendment. And in that amendment, it gives what some people would argue, American citizens the right to bear arms. And I want to read that text for you now. The Second Amendment states, 
a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And so in that amendment, it's sort of convoluted, it's sort of jumbled. You know, there are a bunch of commas, a well-regulated militia necessary to secure the free state. And then it just goes on to say the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And I think the vague nature of this amendment language has caused a number of debates. Does this mean that every individual in America has the right to bear arms? Or was the intent to say only those individuals who are bearing arms for military purposes or to help and assist with military efforts, and they should ultimately have the right to bear arms? There's a lot of confusion around this. There's a lot of debate around this. And both sides are saying that they are right and that they're interpreting this correctly. So I think it's important to start at that high level that there is a debate. And this debate is between two different theories. And Cornell Law School, their Legal Information Institute, is a website that's been providing open access to the law for people who want to read up and learn about different legal issues. And so I leveraged their article in the Second Amendment, which was in great detail, extremely helpful. And so I definitely want to give them credit for consolidating the information in a digestible manner for me to share it with you all today. And so when thinking about the gun debate, and again, some people are saying, no, this was only meant to give people the right to bear arms who were a part of a militia. It was really to allow states to assemble their own armies uh, in case the government tried to overstep. There are others who are saying, no, this means that individuals have the right to bear arms for self-defense, for whatever means they deem necessary. And when you look at these two schools of thought, these two groups, the first group would classify themselves as the individual right theory. And this is the belief that the right of the people to bear and keep arms is an individual constitutional right of the citizens of the United States, and that under this individual right theory, the Constitution restricts legislative bodies from prohibiting firearm possession, and at the very least, the amendment renders prohibitory or restrictive regulation unconstitutional. So let's get out of that legal mumbo-jumbo. What that's basically saying is that these individual right theorists argue that the Constitution and the Second Amendment gives me the right to bear arms, and not just the right to bear arms, but it also ensures that the government does not have a right to infringe upon my right to bear arms. And so the government or any legislative body, they really have no constitutional right to prohibit or restrict the regulation of firearms. And so that's a big debate that the individual right theorists have about the gun reform that is an individual mandate that people are allowed to exercise this right, the government should not be involved. On the other side, we have the collective rights theory. And some scholars, as I mentioned before, again, that confusing language within the Second Amendment, they argue that the language at the intro of the amendment documenting and discussing a well-regulated militia leads them to believe that the founding fathers intended only to restrict Congress from legislating away a state's right to self-defense. And so what the collective rights theorists are basically saying is that the Second Amendment asserts that citizens do not have an individual right to possess guns and that local and state and federal legislative bodies therefore possess the authority to regulate firearms without breaching anyone's constitutional right. So again, a lot of legal mumble jumbo, but what it's basically saying under the collective rights theorist is that no, no, no. The amendment only says that the federal government cannot infringe upon states' ability to sort of collectively bring about a militia to protect and defend themselves. It's basically for states to assert their own self-defense. And in present day, that's almost comparable to the National Guard, where the state can assemble troops in times of crisis or to suppress a certain activities. We saw that, for example, in Ferguson and I believe in Baltimore, where you saw the National Guard coming out 
a sort of a, a mechanism by the state to suppress and to try to control what they deemed as uh, erratic protest. And so we see that the collective rights theorists are arguing that, you know, the states have that right and the federal government won't impose its right on states' ability to defend themselves. But in no way, shape or form does this amendment prohibit states or local governments or federal governments from regulating the use of firearms. And so at a high level, again, the individual right theorists and the collective rights theorists, they're disagreeing over if individuals have the right to bear arms. And that's been a debate that's been going on for centuries. It's a debate that we still are going through in this day and age. And it's one that will have implications, you know, for the gun debate that we're seeing today. So with that background on the individual rights and the collective rights theories, it's now important to look at how the Supreme Court has weighed these two different groups' opinions. And what you'll actually find is that in 1939, in the United States versus Miller, the court seemed to adopt the collective rights approach, again, that approach that the government can regulate the uses of firearms. And it was in this case that they argued that Congress could regulate a sawed-off shotgun that had moved in interstate commerce under the National Firearms Act of 1934 because there was no evidence to suggest that the shotgun had some reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia. The court then explained that the framers included the Second Amendment to ensure the effectiveness of the military. But what this is basically saying is that in 1939, the Supreme Court actually took the side of the collective rights theorists. And they basically said, you know what? The transporting of firearms, in this case a sawed-off shotgun, does not constitute and is in no way related to helping to create and preserve a well-regulated militia. Therefore, the government does have a right to regulate the transport of that, that firearm across state lines. And so that's sort of the law of the land from 1939 going forward. For over 70 years, we see this approach in our understanding of gun laws that the government can regulate uh, this usage. And this was the precedent up until 2008. And in 2008, after 70 years again of this precedent, of this collective rights idea that the government can regulate firearms, the Supreme Court decided in the District of Columbia v. Heller that the plaintiff, who was basically arguing against the constitutionality of Washington, D.C. banning handguns, they argued in a 5-4 decision that the Second Amendment established an individual right for U.S. citizens to possess firearms and struck down the D.C. handgun ban as a violation of the Second Amendment right. This is a recent development, and the Supreme Court appears to be doubling down on this philosophy and this interpretation. For example, in 2010, in McDonald versus the city of Chicago, the plaintiff challenged the constitutionality of the Chicago handgun ban, which prohibited handgun possession by almost all private citizens. Again, in a 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court, citing the intentions of the framers and the ratifiers of the 14th Amendment, they held that the Second Amendment applies to states through the incorporation doctrine. Again, a lot of legal mumbo-jumbo, but what they're basically saying here is that the 14th Amendment, which provides equal protection under the law and due process, that, that for that reason, states should be held accountable for the Bill of Rights. And this is an important note to, to leave you with in understanding the Bill of Rights. When it was passed after the ratification of the Constitution in 1789, the Bill of Rights only applied to federal law and to federal courts. But what they're arguing now through the incorporation doctrine in 2010 is that actually the Bill of Rights should also apply to states and that the state should also be bound to the Bill of Rights. And so when the Supreme Court did that, 
They basically said that the states now have to adhere to the Bill of Rights, and the states also have to adhere to the Second Amendment, which is a part of the Bill of Rights, and for that reason, they're not able to infringe upon people's Second Amendment rights to bear arms at the state level. So this is a big development, and then more recently in 2016, we see a case um, in Massachusetts where the Supreme Court found that the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court was wrong in the reasons that it offered for why the state could ban personal possession or use of a stun gun. And they argued that that this was wrong for the state to do. They didn't provide any additional guidance. They just said it was wrong. And so that's sort of the history of the Supreme Court's interpretation of the gun rights debate. They seem to be on a collective rights theorist side in the beginning. But as of recently, we see them doubling down on this individual right theory, which basically says that each individual has the right to bear arms and that the federal and now, through the, again, that incorporation doctrine. Now they're saying that the Bill of Rights applies to states. Now states can infringe upon the Second Amendment rights. And so now we see in cities like Chicago and also in the District of Columbia, the law coming down and basically saying you cannot infringe upon people's Second Amendment rights. Now, with this freedom to bear arms, at least from the Supreme Court's interpretation, it is important to note that there are some agreed-upon restrictions, and I want to share those with you as well. There are restrictions around the usage of weapons on government property. This was decided in 2009 when a circuit court upheld a defendant's conviction. This defendant was charged with bringing a handgun onto post office property. And so in this case, the courts decided that, yeah, you cannot and you do not have a right to bear arms on government property, and that was the case at that post office where the defendant was charged and convicted. There are regulations against you owning a firearm if you are a juvenile or a convicted felon. And then also the court has allowed certain states to place requirements and regulations on the ability to carry a concealed weapon. So in New York in 2012, they actually prevented individuals from obtaining a license to possess a concealed firearm in public for general purposes unless the individual showed proper cause. And so the circuit courts found that this did not actually infringe upon people's Second Amendment rights, that the states could require you to obtain a permit to carry a concealed weapon around. And when you think about a, a permit to carry a concealed weapon, they're oftentimes afforded to people who, quote-unquote, have good moral character, or you have to have a, a reason for carrying that gun. So there's a threat to your family or to your life, then there are instances where you're able to have a permit uh, to carry a concealed weapon. But this was a significant case because it allowed for states to pass laws requiring people to obtain a permit. And so the federal courts are basically saying you can place restrictions on gun possession and you can place barriers like concealed carry permits to ensure uh, that there is some regulation around gun control. So those are sort of some of the permitted restrictions that are on the books. And then over the course of uh, the 20th and 21st century, we begin to see Congress getting involved and really taking their stance uh, on gun reform and gun regulation. In 1968, this was a tumultuous time in the 60s after the assassination of John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, and Martin Luther King. Lyndon B. Johnson passes a bill that prohibits convicted felons, drug users, and the mentally ill from buying guns. He also raises uh, the age to purchase a gun from a federal licensed dealer to 21, and he expands the licensing requirements 
uh, so that more gun dealers are required to have more detailed record keeping in their books. So that's sort of a stance in 1968 by Lyndon B. Johnson after these prominent assassinations. In 1986, the Congress acts and they essentially uh, place a ban on the private ownership of machine guns made after 1986. And they also establish in a law that any automatic weapons made before 1986, that they have to be registered and that they require extensive background checks before citizens are able to use them. In 1983, the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act mandates background checks for gun buyers. And this was done in order to ensure that they were prohibiting people in that 1968 legislation, again passed by Lyndon B. Johnson, against felons and drug users and the mentally ill. They sought to have these background checks to ensure that they're preventing people mentioned the 1968 bill from actually obtaining weapons. In 1994, Congress passes the assault weapons ban on new semi-automatic weapons. It expires in 10 years. And so from 1994 to 2004, there was this ban. In 2004, the Republicans were in control. They allowed for the ban to lapse, and it ultimately expired. And so since then, we haven't really taken any significant action similar to the assault weapons ban to really place a a federally mandated ban on semi-automatic weapons. Now, we do have that federal ban after 1986 on fully automatic weapons. And if you aren't familiar, fully automatic weapons are weapons that, if you pull the trigger, can fire off. Uh, multiple rounds as you're pulling that trigger. Semi-automatic weapons require you to sort of pull the trigger each time you want to fire. And so we placed a ban on those fully automatic weapons that can do a lot of damage by just keeping your hand on the trigger. In terms of what we can do from a constitutional perspective, it's very difficult to amend the Constitution. The most common way, and this is actually the way that all 27 amendments have been added to the Constitution, is that you have two-thirds of the House of Representatives vote in support of the amendment. You have two-thirds of the Senate vote to support the amendment. And then you need three-fourths of the state legislatures to approve the amendment. And so it's extremely difficult to get an amendment added to the Constitution. And so in the near term, it looks like the federal action, the congressional action, is going to be the way to really bring about that change quick and fast and in a hurry uh, versus trying to win on a constitutional amendment, which could take years, if not decades, to really be fleshed out, especially as this debate is already so contentious and the sides are already so far apart that to think that three-fourths of the states could agree on this and that there could be that type of consensus is sort of far-fetched under this current reality and not really a viable solution in the short term. And so it's really looking at what legislative measures can be taken to really offset and address this problem that we're seeing with guns. And so through all of this, we have seen uh, history of the gun reform debate. We've seen the Supreme Court's interpretation. We've seen congressional action and congressional interpretation. And those are very clear measures, you know, banning fully automatic weapons, placing restrictions on who can purchase guns, placing restrictions on where guns can be used, so not on federal property. You can't use it if you're a juvenile or a felon. These are certain rules that are clear and that are in place. But I think what's even more striking, and I think why this debate is so relevant and so contentious, is that there is still a lot of gray area. And so even though we have all of these Supreme Court decisions, which mainly focus on handgun bans, we really don't have any clear understanding of the gray area in between. Could there be certain measures that are constitutional that fit in the middle in that gray area that aren't overturned by a Supreme Court that seems to favor this individual rights theory? And so when you think about that gray area, 
this past weekend, the Justice Department took the first step in, in trying to take some action where they effectively proposed a new regulation that would ban bump stocks. Now, we talked about fully automatic weapons. Again, pull that trigger, and as long as your hand's on the trigger, you can fire off rounds. But then you have semi-automatic weapons where you're going to have to pull the trigger each time you want to fire off uh, ammunition. What we have with bump stocks is a situation where if you add them to a semi-automatic weapon, it could ultimately allow that weapon to function as a fully automatic weapon. So very, very dangerous weapon with a lot of power to inflict harm on people. And this is actually what was used in Las Vegas by that Las Vegas shooter who killed 58 people. The bump stock allowed the semi-automatic weapon to function as a fully automatic weapon. And so what the Justice Department announced this past weekend is that they're going to try to pass a, a regulation that would ban bump stocks. And it would do this by reclassifying them as machine guns. And again, in 1986, machine guns were outlawed. And so if the Justice Department is able to categorize bump stocks as machine guns, you can effectively ban them. And so that's something to keep an eye out in the news in terms of what people are thinking about. And so with all this information, all this information on the history of the gun reform debate of the two sides, the collective rights theorists and the individual rights theorists, the Supreme Court's interpretation, the congressional activity that's taking place, the executive branch getting involved in passing laws, I wanted to provide that context to show you where we are. And what this history lesson from this 34th Ranch shows is that there is some gray area. That yes, there have been some interpretations that have struck down the banning of certain weapons, but there have also been certain decisions that have allowed for permitted restrictions on the use of guns. We permit restrictions on federal property, or on government property, I should say. We restrict access to juveniles and convicted felons and the mentally ill. We allow states to require licenses to obtain uh, permits to carry firearms in public. So there are ways in which we can operate within the confines of our current system to really push for the gun reform that is needed to ensure that people are safe. And past president has shown that there is some gray area where we can take legislative measures to ensure that we're protecting the American people. And I think that what the Justice Department did this past weekend is one of those steps by, again, reclassifying bump stocks as machine guns so that you can ban their usage in the United States. What are some other areas that we can find, some other gray area that we can attack that can allow us to really address this gun reform debate. What you hear about a lot in the news is sort of stricter background checks, more stringent background checks. You see requests for states like Florida and others to raise the minimum age to buy a firearm. There are a lot of different measures that can be taken by us, and I don't want people to get disheartened or discouraged by saying, oh, the Supreme Court's going to strike that down, or there's no wiggle room, because in fact, there is a significant amount of wiggle room when you look at some of the restrictions that are currently in place. But I think that when you look at history, when you look at all that we've accomplished with respect to other movements, I don't think that we should become so disheartened by the insurmountable challenges that appear to be in our way, as I think that other instances like the civil rights movement, like the women's movement, show that when people collectively come together, we change and we set the precedent. We set the status quo, and we, for ourselves, are pressure forces our elected officials to interpret the laws of the land in ways that the people deem that they should be interpreted and to ensure that we are all represented as citizens of the United States who are entitled to life, liberty, 
and more importantly, the pursuit of happiness. And so in closing, I want to leave you with a letter to the editor. This was written by Peter Poole to the LA Times in February of 2018. He notes, it's time to stop talking and to start marching. We are running out of schools, movie theaters, concerts, nightclubs, businesses, parties, and subways to avoid being gunned down. But too many of us are also emotionally and intellectually in flight. Action is needed, not words. We must shift from the flight response to the fight response. Our history proves that the action of marching masses imprints in lawmakers' minds the image of conviction and action. Marches were the catalyst of the Women's Voting Rights, the Civil Rights Act, marriage equality, and the Me Too movement. A march for national gun sense laws will shame our lawmakers into being true leaders. The nation's youth are begging us to be dedicated, driven adults. I'm ready to march. Are you? And so this letter to the editor strikes on what I think we all need to be thinking about now is how do we get involved? How do we allow our voices to be heard? And my hope is that with the context that's been provided in this 34th rant, that you'll have a clear understanding of the laws of the lands, of the different interpretations of the history, so that you can figure out for yourself what it looks like for you to get involved. And so I hope that with this rant, and more importantly with the recent events, the March for Our Lives, the different horrific shootings that have been taking place over the last few years, I hope that this will be a wake-up call to say, never again. And for us to ensure this doesn't happen ever again, we have to be equipped with the facts, with the history, with the context, and the understanding to really assess and determine how we insert ourselves into this debate to get the change and to invoke the change that we want to see in the world. Thanks again for tuning in to the 34th official episode of The Riley Rant. Remember, if it's Sunday, it's time to rant. If it's Sunday, it's The Riley Rant. <laughs>